You may have heard of the surface area of luck. It's the idea that you can increase good fortune by doing two things. One, pursuing your passion with action. And then two, less obvious, communicating that passion to as many relevant people as possible. Today's guest, Shane Ursum, is a perfect example. Shane's passion was his intention to acquire a business and become an entrepreneur, and he took tons of action in the pursuit of that passion. Then he followed it up by communicating with the relevant people, namely business brokers in Texas, the geography where he wanted to buy. Only six months after launching his search, Shane was the owner of a business that did $1.7 million of EBITDA in 2021. Such an exciting outcome, and in a short amount of time. I encourage you to pay close attention when Shane and I go deep on his process of broker outreach. It's a tutorial on how to efficiently and methodically increase your own surface area of luck. Here is Shane Ursum, owner of North Texas Trailers. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The Lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the Lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Shane Ursum, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Uh, really happy to be here, listen to a lot of the, your episodes, and I uh, think you're doing a great thing for the space. Appreciate that, sir. Shane, you were serious in your search. You uh, were organized and committed and, and full-time, and you found a business to buy, a good business to buy in six months' time. So a great acquisition in six months. It's really what searchers set out to do, uh, but few accomplish it. So we are going to hear how you did so. Start us off, Shane, with your background, start us wherever you think is relevant to this, this story. Okay. Yeah. Uh, happy to do so. Yeah. I would say I bought a great business, uh, but I'm certainly partial. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My father owns, uh, still owns, uh, after 26 years, a successful home care franchise uh, where I grew up in the Southwest. And uh, he's actually kind of entering into that stage where uh, a lot of searchers are looking for is he's a planning on retiring in the near future and kind of trying to set up his, his uh, exit process. Uh, but nonetheless, grew up uh, with my dad as a father figure and as a you know, real uh, mentor, um, real hero of mine. And a lot of that was more about how much he prioritized my sister and I, our family, 
um, the flexibility that came with him being a business owner. Um, and that really kind of gave me inspiration that this is the lifestyle that I want to have at some point. Um, my, my father is, uh, very humble in what his desires and material goals were. I, I would say I'm a little bit more, uh, money motivated than, than he ever was. Uh, but I, I saw that the success that he had with the franchise and most importantly, the flexibility they gave him was really what inspired me. So, uh, going into uh, college, I, I studied entrepreneurial management and marketing. Uh, I knew, you know, exactly what I wanted to do at some point in my life. Um, I never, um, had a great startup idea. I never really thought that a startup um, was kind of in my direction. I guess having seen my father have success with the franchise model, I, I kind of always just assumed that that was probably be the direction I would go. Um, but after college, I knew I had to get you know get out in the working world, uh, cut my chops, and uh, you know learn the skills um, and leadership necessary to hopefully one day own my own business. And so that's what I did. And um, I was attracted to jobs that, you know, provided me to be in management um, at a young age. Ultimately ended up uh, with a company, was there for 11 years um, in ascending leadership roles and um, <clears throat> managed a team as large as 750 people, P&L uh, over 120 million. Uh, really had a lot of success with that, that company. Um, it was a great career, uh, but ultimately um, towards the end there, um, really pretty unhappy and really started to think about, you know, I'm already into my mid thirties. I, I, if I don't make this business ownership thing happen, um, when is that going to happen? And of course, you know, the longer you work at a company, the higher you go, the harder it is to leave, you know, the quote unquote golden handcuffs were, were very much real. Uh, but it was always in the back of my head. And so fast forward to, uh, September of 21, um, like I said, I was already kind of thinking about moving on, um, but they made that choice for me. And I was ultimately laid off due to a restructuring. And, um, you know, that ultimately ended up being the best decision that ever happened and the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. During these years um, as a W-2 man young manager and growing at this company, were you talking with your father about your entrepreneurial aspirations? Is this an ongoing conversation that you guys have, or is it more just like you watching him and kind of quietly seeking to emulate him at some point? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, at first it was just, I was very focused on just doing as well in that position as I could. And especially, you know, right after school, the first probably four or five years, um, and I was very motivated to, to get promoted. You know, the accolades, the promotions, the, the uh, additional compensation, those were all what kind of kept me driving forward. And, um, but I remember very specifically when uh, my father and I went on a vacation together with my sister, we had a lot of long conversations about, uh, you know, is this truly what I want to be doing? Is this, am I happy doing what I'm doing? And, and when, you, when you're forced to really be that introspective and, and really kind of think about what the heart wants, I realized it wasn't, um, but again, it was, I was doing well, it was hard to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, we were comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say that it was always gnawing at the back of me, uh, back of my head, but, um, it wasn't something that I spent a lot of time thinking about because I think the more I thought about it, the more I realized I was unhappy in what I was doing or not truly fulfilled, I should say. Um, but 
you know, all of the pressures of the world of, you know, the mortgage and the lifestyle and everything else just made it, you know, hard to, to think about taking that leap. Sure. And so you have a family, your own family? I'm married, no kids. Hopefully God blesses us with children in the near future. Um, but, uh, I am married. Okay. Okay. So you said you were laid off, uh, from the, from the business where you'd worked for over a decade in 2021. What month was that? Did you say? September, September 1st of 21. Okay. September 1st, 2021. Um, so just about a year ago. And so it's the best thing that ever happens to you because it has now set you on this path. How did you, um, I mean, tell us about the, the actual decision to not re-enter the workforce or not go get another W2 and in, and in fact become an entrepreneur? Yeah. So uh, my dad had actually sent me the Harvard business book, uh, Buying a Small Business, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with, back sure. in 2018. And I had actually started to read that and was really, you know, kind of blown away by some of the success stories that are you know, shown in that book. Really thought this, this seems like a better path. Um, ironically, um, the same vacation that I was reading the book on, I ended, ended up getting a call um, that promoted me and brought me from the East Coast back to Texas, which is where I ultimately wanted to be. And so I, I just stopped reading the book um, right at that point because I was, had gotten this promotion that had uh, long been sought after, was getting relocated back to the area that I wanted to li live in. Um, so I was happy and I was focused on, on that next role. So once I uh, was ultimately laid off, you know, after a week or so of letting the sting kind of, um, you know, come off, I started to think about what is it that, that I want to do? And, you know, I polished up my resume, you know, just the natural things that you would do when you've just been laid off. And, um, and so, you know, but I had, I had that book and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to open this thing back up. I'm going to reread it from the beginning. And, uh, that propelled me to spend more time on search funder. Um, and was just, you know, every day getting on search funder, watching interviews, watching, uh, you know, speakers, reading different, um, resources that, that that website makes available. Um, and then I started a network with different searchers as well. And that was what really kind of, the more I read about it, the more I saw, the more I was like, this is, this is the right path for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what, a month or two later, you decide that you're going to do this thing? Well, so kind of at the same time I'm researching the world of search, um, I'm also, um, talking to a number of different franchise brokers, you know, that mm -hmm. had always kind of been what I thought, um, the direction that, that business ownership would or what it would look like for me. So, um, so I, I spoke to probably 12 different franchise networks, um, you know, a lot of really good ones, but ultimately they all wanted me to start a territory from scratch, you know, with X amount of dollars as an investment and, um, you know, no real confirmed got, you know, timeframe as to when I'm going to be able to start paying myself a paycheck. And no matter how great the upside was for some of these new territories and new franchise opportunities, I just kept coming back to the idea that why do that when I can buy a business that already has cash flow? If I buy the right business, I can pay myself a salary, hopefully close um, to what I was uh, making prior, um, or at least something. And I've already got all the infrastructure built in. I've already got all the employees. I, I've got product market fit. That just made too much sense to me. And so I, I kind of stopped my conversations with the franchisees 
And I would say, you know, if you have a resale, I'm open to that, but here's the size of business that I'm looking for. And, uh, those types of franchise resales are few and far between. And so they had all kind of say, well, that's, it's not really realistic. And I said, well, I know, I know they're out there. They might be few and far between, but this is what I'm looking for. And I'm not going to settle for something smaller. Um, and that's when I really kind of pushed aside the franchise opportunity, unless they came back to me with an attractive resale. And I decided that the search was the way I was going to go. And why is it unrealistic? Why did they set your expectations low that a resale opportunity might come along? Just due to the size and financials that I was looking for. Um, you mm. know, initially I, I, I kind of defined my search criteria um, as an earnings range between 400 and 750,000. And mm -hmm. uh, there are certainly a lot of franchisees, especially franchisees that have you know, multiple territories um, in different franchise networks that, that do that. Uh, but those are not typically what, what resales come up within the network is my understanding. And, you know, there are a lot of them are sub 100,000, sub 200,000 opportunities. And, um, I just knew that wasn't what I was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you consider doing a franchise, which is what your father had done. Uh, and by the way, a point on your, on him, um, it wasn't, I guess, just that one conversation when you were on vacation you and him and your sister. He'd also been kind of planting seeds for years if he gave you the Harvard Business Review book back in 2018. Yeah, he, he did. And, you know, certainly there was many, many times we talked about what does succession of his business look like? And do my sister and I fit into that? Um, where do we fit into that? And um, we have both toyed quite a lot with just kind of naturally rolling the business over to my sister and I, and it'd be a sure. great business, uh, to run and to have, uh, but for a number of different reasons, it just didn't seem to be the right fit at, at, at the time. And, um, and of course, you know, people might ask, well, why didn't you offer to buy your, your father's business? And ultimately I was very happy. We live in Dallas. We, my wife and I like where we live, um, was not interested in moving home. Uh, and ultimately just thought that, um, that my dad could have more success kind of getting the exit that he's looking for, um, by, by pursuing that path. And, mm -hmm. uh, his franchise also happens to be kind of at a crossroads where the franchisor has been acquired, uh, by a VC backed company. And, and so there's some uncertainty there, uh, as far as exactly what the new model is going to look like and, and how do some of these legacy franchisees fit into that. Um, uh, so that just, that get, kind of gave me pause. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, ha having explored a number of different options, you arrive at buying an independent small business as the path forward. So now we're in late 2021. And what is your first step? August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com 
O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. Just taking advantage of the free resources uh, online, Search Funder, got uh, the Buy the Build book, read that, and just, you know, was listening to podcasts, uh, reading articles, and uh, was given advice to network with searchers and, um, and try to talk to at least 20 or as many as I could to really determine, it, am I committed to this path? Is this what I want to do? And I thought that was great advice. So began reaching out to uh, Texas-based searchers and on SearchFinder and was given the advice by one of the searchers that I talked to that the best thing that they had done for their search was to join the acquisition lab, which I know is one of your sponsors. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not paid to say any of the things I say about acquisition <laughs> lab, but I, I can 100% confirm um, what that searcher had said. That was the best thing that happened for my search and was really what helped kind of propel me from learning about search to actually conducting a search. And uh, so I joined the acquisition lab in November of 21, um, was part of cohort 15. And, um, you know, again, I'm full-time searching. Most of the folks in the lab are not full-time at the time that they joined the lab. but I was, you know, I was like, hey, I got to get, I know that my, my severance is going to run out at some point and I got to get income. You know, I got to, I got to propel this search forward as fast as I can. And so I was very hungry to learn as much as I could to, um, to really soak up the information and education that's provided through the acquisition lab and um, as fast as I could and to get to that point where I was ready to launch my search. And so the four weeks uh, intensive, as they call it, um, mm-hmm. really helped, you know, help me kind of finalize what the educate, you know, get me a lot more educated about how to properly conduct a search and um, would have been ready to, to launch right at the end of November, beginning of December. But with the holidays, we had a, a Christmas vacation plan with family. I, I, I didn't quite do a full blown launch. I really kind of did the the last few steps of finishing up my website, uh, clarifying my target statement. And I began, you know, where a lot of people began is just cruising best uh, biz by sell and ultimately found a couple opportunities during the month of December that were interesting and had a, a number of my first seller conversations, um, but didn't officially launch a uh, meeting a full, full blown broker outreach until uh, January 1. Yeah, and and elaborate a little bit on what you mean by launch. You just said full blown, full blown broker outreach, um, but but elaborate a little bit more on like what you know pieces you had in place, and then what that first step or two looked like when you launched. Yeah, so number one, I, I chose that I wanted to focus on broker outreach, and I had determined that I wanted to do it a very geographic search. Uh, as I mentioned, we live in Dallas, and. I was confident that if I searched within the Dallas-Fort Worth, North Texas area, that there would be enough opportunity that I could find find a business that would that would match what I was looking for. I don't think that's probably the case in most metropolitan areas, other than a handful across the, the country. And certainly, a lot of searchers would tell you that you got to widen your your geographic area to to have more success. Um, we love where we live, we love our house. Just didn't want to move. My wife has a great job. She likes, uh, loves what she does too. And so for us, it was, let's find something where we don't have to relocate. Um, but again, 
was focusing on broker outreach. And so when I say I officially launched, I had built um, basically an automated email campaign um, to about 400 plus brokers um, and officially sent that out beginning of, of January. And that was, you know, really the beginning of um, my, my broker outreach. Um, what officially I, I say kind of launched mm -hmm. the, the outreach search part. And that, that list of 400, did you get that from the IBBA website or somewhere? Yeah, I, I looked on IBBA, Interexo, uh, BizBuySell. I, I just tried to gather as many broker emails, Texas-based brokers as I could, um, not just Dallas-Fort Worth, because I you know, very much thought that even if somebody's based in Houston, San Antonio, Austin, East Texas, somewhere else, they may have access to or know of other business owners in North Texas. Um, and that was kind of what I found throughout my search was that, well, I was ne specifically trying to network with Texas-based brokers. There are a lot of brokerages across the country that work, you know, they, they cover the entire U.S. And so I would mm -hmm. find listings um, on either BizBuySell or other brokerage websites, um, but were listed by some brokerage out in New York or Kansas City or California. Um, and they just happened to be listing this Dallas based business. And so anytime I would do that, I would just kind of add that name to my list, add that name to my, my contact, uh, list and, uh, ensure that I was following up with them. But initially it was just Texas based brokers. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great point, um, to make sure that when people are, when you're building your, your broker outreach list that, um, yeah, you may want to include people in there, brokers in there who are not based in Texas, but who, for whatever reason, had a Texas listing and might might in the future have more. That's great. Um, Shane, circling, I just, before we get too far away from it, I want to circle back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. Um, and I've heard this many times before, but I've never asked the follow-up. You heard the advice to reach out to a lot of searchers to, to um, make sure that this was, in fact, the path you wanted to go down. What... Um, what do you think that piece of advice is about? Is it about like the realities of operating a small business and how it's not maybe not as glamorous as somebody from the outside thinks it is? I mean, what, what, I mean, yeah, what did you need? Or I guess maybe just answer it for yourself. What did you learn from these, from networking researchers, from all these, these conversations you had that, um, what concerns did you have about what the search might be and, and what, what allayed those concerns after those conversations? Yeah, great question. So I, I think the point is to try to network with folks that um, that have success and, and try to glean from them what led to that success, but also try to find folks that didn't have success or are still in the process of searching. You had a, recently had a guest on that you know has been searching for over a year and, and is not yeah. where they want to be in their search. Trying to network and, and understand from those folks because it is a long, long, tough journey. Um, for a lot of folks, you know, I think the average, uh, time is between 18 and 24 months and you have to be prepared to be doing a lot of work on your own, uh, without income, most likely to survive those 18 to 24 months before you successfully, uh, acquire it, you know, thank God for me, it happened much faster than that. And, and I think that some of the things that I did were, were part of the reason that it did happen faster. And I was confident going into my search that I could beat those odds of, of 18 to 24 months. But in speaking with other searchers, you really want to know from both successful and people who have maybe abandoned a search or have maybe even 
acquired, but had a unsuccessful outcome within their acquisition because there's a lot of risk involved. There's a lot of uh, time and energy and money that go into conducting and executing a search. Um, and it's a lonely, tough path. And so, you know, this person who gave me advice wanted to make sure I was mentally prepared for that and committed to it because you can't half commit to a search. Or if you do, if you half commit to it, you're not going to be as successful or certainly as, as successful as quick as you probably want to be. Mm -hmm. And, and certainly I, I think what you're talking about there is, is psychological, emotional commitment, um, but also time commitment. So it's, it's a theme that's come up in recent episodes and, and, um, Jordan Carter's whole kind of the angle of his episode was devoted to the fact of, um, full-time versus part-time uh, and and the dramatic difference that, that that makes. And it's not just, you know, twice as, twice as effective going from, say, 20 hours a week to 40 hours a week. It's, it's much more than that because, the, because there's an accelerant that occurs when you're, when you're putting all your time in and can take every call whenever any broker wants to talk. And um, you just iterate so much faster, more than twice as fast. So, mm -hmm. um, But you didn't have to learn that the hard way. You decided from the outset that you would go in full-time. So you've, you've done your broker outreach or you've started your broker outreach. You've quote unquote launched the search. And um, so t tell us what, what starts happening in those first few weeks. Yeah. Uh, so listen, there's a lot of searchers out there with some very, uh, very excellent tech stacks and different, um, you know, CRM programs and automated email campaigns that you can build. Uh, I am not uh, very technically savvy when it comes to that, but I was able to use Mixmax to build a two, just a two email campaign, uh, probably could have or should have done, uh, done more than that. But, uh, what I did was I sent out two emails, uh, to a list of over 400 plus brokers. I also used, uh, somebody on Upwork to build a list of kind of intermediaries, CPAs, lawyers, um, folks that would have clients that are business owners to try to do kind of a a third party proprietary outreach. And so I kind of sent them the same two email campaign as well, thinking, you know, if I just get one opportunity that's off market from this, this outreach, then it's, that's worth it. Um, sure. that ultimately didn't end up proving to be true. I did make a handful of great contacts with financial planners, CPAs, things like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, what, where I got the most success and most, um, engagement was in the, the broker side. So, uh, you know, obviously any, Brokers that uh, would respond via email or time with me, you know, uh, would call them, would um, email, respond to their emails, would book time to, to speak with them and kind of just explain who I was, what I was looking for, really just trying to get across the fact that I was a motivated and qualified buyer um, and, and give them the confidence that I'm not somebody who's kicking tires. If I find the right business, I have the ability to close. I'm motivated to close and I, and I will close. Um, and so again, just, you know, was engaging every day with people via email, but uh, as soon as my email campaign finished, I, I loaded every one of my contacts into HubSpot and I just created, um, you know, basically a follow-up campaign for myself and began cold calling anyone who hadn't responded to my email. Um, just again, trying to let them know who I was, what I was looking for. Obviously, there was a lot of dead conversations that happened, but there was a lot of successful ones as well. And having, you know, the two-pronged attack of email and phone call, I think definitely led to more engagement uh, because many uh, brokers that I spoke with would say, oh, I, 
I think I saw an email from you, but they mm -hmm. had, they never responded or they never booked time. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but again, that persistence, that follow up, um, you know, this is, I think what led to building better, um, relationships and better engagement with some of the brokers. So, um, you know, because of the fact that I was cold calling the broker that ended up listing the business that I bought, um, was not somebody who responded to my email, but he was somebody that I was able to get on the phone. And that's when I first learned about this business. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to get there. Um, but on this broker outreach, you know, the other, so few people pick up the phone now. Um, I imagine at least searchers. So you probably, even if you hadn't sent those two emails prior to doing the cold calling, you probably would have really differentiated, differentiated yourself by calling. I, I suspect, I, I don't know that for sure. Um, but who picks up the phone anymore other than, you know, SaaS salespeople trying to sell you technology, <laughs> right? Well, well, one of the takeaways that I found was that when you're looking on IBBA or, or one of these, you know, kind of, uh, websites with a number of different brokers is that there are a lot of, uh, broker teams similar to real mm. estate teams where, yeah. you know, there's the managing partner or kind of the president director, and they may have a team of two, three, four, maybe 10 brokers on their team but they're the name that's listed on that IBBA website. And so when I would email that person and called and cold call that person, I wasn't going to get through to them. Or if I did, they'd say, you know, I, I'm not really, uh, I'm leading a team here. I'm, I'm running a business. I'm not necessarily out networking with sellers other than maybe a handful of very large clients, but let me get you to somebody on my team. And so that's, you know, where I was able to, go beyond the, the email list and find out, all right, well, Will Smith is, you know, has his own brokerage and he's not, maybe not the person that I should be networking with, but he's got a broker on his team that is the person I should be talking with. And so mm -hmm. making those connections, being able to kind of keep track of those notes and understand, all right, well, I have this person here, but it's really a team of people underneath that person that I should be speaking with also helped kind of just educate me through that process. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it is a sales, it is a sales effort. I mean, that's what, that's what salespeople do when they're kind of trying to triangulate to see who the right person to talk to is to, you know, in, in their case, sell them something. In your case was, it was different motivation, but same mechanics. Uh, and Shane, yep. just give us a sense. So you have this list of 400, give us a sense of how many cold calls you were doing a day. What do you, what do you, can you do? 10 or 20? At, at least 20, sometimes 30, just depending on the conversations, depending on, you know, if I already booked time with, uh, with another broker or with uh, a seller. Um, but I would say on average, probably 20 to 30. And if I didn't get a hold of them, um, I would, you know, make a, a, a note to follow up with them in two weeks. If I did get a hold of them, depending on the, the conversation, you know, either a two week follow up or a month long follow up. Um, the other thing that I would do uh, that I think was important is before calling them, I would go to that broker's website and or their listings on biz by sell and i would try to see what active listings that the, they had and i would try to find a listing that they had that might be somewhat interesting to me because brokers in my experience are much more willing to talk to you if you're speaking to them directly about a listing that they have than sure. just trying to say hey i'm shane and i want to buy a business um and so if i could at least you know get them talking about that listing to try to learn more information even if I knew there was about a 95% chance that it wasn't the right listing for me, um, there are some diamonds in the rough that aren't listed, you know, with all of their best attributes up front. Um, 
And so, you know, I was always trying to kind of uh, stretch myself to say, I don't think this is a business that I want to buy, but let me at least learn about it because it'll help me build a relationship with the broker. And it'll also just give me a wider experience of looking at a number of different businesses um, that all have different attributes to them. So because I was looking, you know, I was industry agnostic. I kind of settled on D2B service businesses, which I know a lot of searchers do. That was what my background was at, in corporate America. Um, so it made sense for me to, to look into that. But I was really open to pretty much all industries other than I knew I didn't want to buy a food or restaurant uh, business. I know I didn't really want to do an online business. That um, just wasn't my expertise or my what I felt comfortable uh, really almost anything in between, I, I was at least going to be willing to look at it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is great, Shane. Um, you, you had said that you were basically always trying to communicate to the brokers via email. And then when you got them on the, when, and if you got them on the phone, that you were somebody they should take seriously, that you weren't a tire kicker, that you had the, 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 real intention and capability to close. How did you communicate that? Um, yeah, I, I, I would, you know, I had a, uh, an SBA pre-qualification letter that I would send as part of my email campaign. Uh, I would, you know, they would ask sometimes uh, deeper questions about where the funding was going to come from. I would give them direct answers um, if it required it, you know, where, where the money was coming from and what, where I had that money tied up, whether it was in my 401k or um, investments um, or savings. Um, I'd also explain that depending on the size of the business that I felt confident that I could get additional investors. Um, but that was my goal was to acquire something with 100% equity. Um, and um, I, would, I would reiterate the fact that I was full-time searching, that this is this was a full-time job to me and that I was very motivated to replace my income and so I wanted to close quickly and I, uh, was not just going to be doing a bunch of different financial models and learning about these businesses. I wanted to, if I liked the business, I wanted to get in front of the seller quickly and I wanted as much documentation, financials or other information that they would provide as quickly as I could so that I could give them very quick feedback as to whether I wanted to move forward or not. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And did you find, how did you, what did you call yourself? Did you call yourself a searcher or did you call yourself something else? I'm sure I probably use the word searcher. Uh, I, I would sometimes get questions whether I was a search fund and, and the answer to that was very easily, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not like, paying for this search myself. Um, I'm not bringing outside investors unless needed and unless the, the, the business that I find requires it. Um, that I am an independent person looking to buy a business. And this is the direction that I want to go. And I've always wanted to be a business owner. And why start a business when you can buy one? Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, so you're, you're a flurry of activity, but, but very systematic. And you're developing all these, making contact, developing relationships with all these brokers. And... Um, you were just about to tell us, so the, the business that you have acquired, which we're going to learn all about, how did that, from all of this activity, how did that um, make its way to you? Yeah, so 
again, one of the brokers that I had sent an email to was on my list uh, of follow-ups. And I don't remember specifically if I got him on the phone the first time or if I left a message and one of my follow-ups was able to get him on the phone. Um, but, but nonetheless, ultimately I ended up with him on the phone and just explained who I was and what I was looking for. Um, they asked a few clarifying questions and um, he ultimately said, hey, I just got this listing. It's a trailer dealership. Um, is it something that interests you? I said, well, tell me more. And so he, he basically said, you know, um, our SIM is not up to date and I'll get into the reasons why, but I have 2021 financials. He gave me kind of a rough overview and I said, you know, that sounds great. I just think it's too big for me. I don't think that, um, that business is going to, going to be able to something that I can afford. Um, and, and he reiterated, well, um, due to some, uh, specifics about the business, we have realistic expectations. Um, and the owner's motivated and he's flexible. So are you interested? And of course I said, well, yes, I, I felt as, as long as I was being, uh, upfront and communicating directly that, listen, I, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste the owner's time. This, this may not be within my wheelhouse. Uh, well, my, my, the, I may not have the ability to afford this business. As long as they were still willing to talk to me and work with me, I thought, why not? I'll just keep move, taking, uh, moving the ball forward and keep learning more about it. So, absolutely. And Shane, I think you said your your range had been four hundred to seven fifty in cash flow and SDE. It, it started at that. I uh, by the time I officially started talking to brokers, uh, I had moved that up to six hundred thousand to a million. Um, I had been pre qualified um, by uh, a uh, an SBA lender that the acquisition lab uses um, at two and a half million with my with my own funds uh, with plenty of post closing liquidity, um, and um, so I kind of use that as my baseline as as that's what I thought my kind of top end um, size was going to be, um, and I thought that yeah it would have to be you know a pretty favorable multiple but I could find a business between six hundred thousand and a million up to that size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So between 600 and a million, let's call that 800 in the middle there. And then 800 times a 3x multiple gets you right to your two and a half million number for the pre-approval. And um, the, so, so you, so you, your range before had just kind of been what felt like you, you wanted. And then you basically used what the pre-approval turned out to be, which was maybe bigger than you, bigger than you expected to say, okay, that's my budget. Is that it now? Is that actually how most searchers do it? Where they basically talk to the, the bank or a lender and a lender tells them what they can afford? Maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah. What, what it was for me was that before I really kind of knew what SDE and EBITDA really meant and really learned how the kind of debt coverage um, that was going to be required or the amount of, you know, if I was going to be, uh, have a leverage buyout with say a 90% or 80% SBA loan, how much that eats into the, the quote unquote earnings of the business. It's not true cash flow to me, the owner, when you're seeing what's represented in EBITDA or earnings, there's obviously a lot of other costs that go into that, uh, most particularly paying down your SBA loan. So initially I thought, hey, 400,000, that's a really good living. That, that's a lot of money, <laughs> yeah. kind of not realizing that, you know, that's not after all is said and done and paid for, 
that only leaves a, a little bit, a uh, little bit left for me, assuming the business stays the same. What if the business dips? And yep. so, um, I really just, you know, wanted to give myself more of a cushion so that I could pay myself at least something, um, and still have, you know, wiggle room to comfortably pay down my debt, um, and comfortably put necessary investments into the business to help grow it. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us what salary you were trying to replace? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I would say 200,000 was what I was looking to pay myself. Great. Great. Okay. So this business is, uh, sounds interesting. It seems too big. Um, but you communicate that transparently to the broker. Um, and he said, he encourages you to, to, to keep going, you know, seller, seller's motivated, seller's, you know, open to negotiation, presumably. What was that first number or, or set of numbers that you saw that made you say this is too big? Was it, I mean, what was the, yeah, what, how, how big a business are we talking? Yeah, so um, the business benefited from tremendous tailwinds due to the supply chain uh, issues that occurred as a result of COVID. Um, and it was kind of a confluence of a multitude of different factors. With all the stimulus money they got put into the the economy, as we saw with a lot of different consumer goods, demand went through the roof. At the same time, supply chain was choked off, and um, all the um, you know parts became much harder to get. The raw materials became much harder to get, so therefore inventory became very hard to get. Um, and our manufacturers um, went from a say four to six week lead time to a four month lead time, and so. Um, you had this, you know, just basic economic pressure of demands going through the roof, supplies really uh, struggled. And so this business was able to raise their margins. Um, the overall cost uh, of a trailer went up significantly. So just naturally the revenue went up um, because obviously, you know, as a, as a trailer dealership, we're passing those, you know, the costs on to our consumers as is every other competitor of ours. Um, but also just to be, be able to keep inventory on a lot, the, Previous owners were able to raise margins um, pretty significantly, and so <clears throat> the business um, ended up doing more than double, about 125 percent of prior year's earnings in 2021. So the business was averaging around uh, 900 thousand or so in, in EBITDA 18 through 20, and did um, more than 1.7 in 2021. <laughs> wow. And so the number that they were looking for, I mean, did they, did they, was there a sale price for the business or did they just give you that EBITDA number and you were like, that's probably too rich for me, no matter what your number is? Well, so uh, as I'm sure, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of searches have encountered, it really depends on the brokerage, whether there's a listed price. So I'm broke, I, I, to me, I think it was about 50-50. Um, and so this um, broker did not have a listed price. And so, you know, anytime there's not a listed price, it's open for negotiation, right? And every broker that I've spoken to handles that very differently. Some of them will be extremely opaque and say, best offer wins, you figure it out. Some of them will give you a little bit more insight as to what helps get a deal done and maybe what the seller's looking for. And this broker was, was more on that side. And so he would never come right out and say it, uh, give me a specific number to offer. 
but he kind of gave me a range of what the, the owners were looking for and, um, you know, reiterated that there was motivation and there was, they were willing to be flexible. And so those two things, along with my, uh, transparency that I would need them to be flexible in order to put together the right deal package, um, allowed them to continue to, to work with me. But yeah, seeing that, that SDE number, I was like, no, I mean, by really almost any multiple, uh, that's quickly going to get outside of my range. Right. Of course, you could make the argument, which I'm sure you did, that that was an aberration. 2021 is everybody, you know, that just the world was topsy-turvy. A lot of businesses just did so much better than they'd done historically that year or so much worse, in your case, better. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about valuing businesses from 2020, 2019, and 2018 and leaving out 2021 altogether because it's so it's such an exception. Um, so and so even if you left out 2021, you still got a great business. I mean, it was still doing $900,000 historically in EBITDA, which is the top of your range. You said you were looking from 600 to a million. So right up there at the top of your range, just just beautiful, Shane. <laughs> so, yeah. um, okay. So I, I don't want to take too long. We haven't even gotten you in the seat yet, but um, kind of tell us how the actual acquisition and negotiation unfolded. Well, to, to touch on that a little bit further, you know, yeah. the, the sellers and the owners uh, were, were very, and I, I give a lot of credit to the broker uh, for properly educating the seller in that you can't just take 2021's number, add 5X to it and expect that that's what you're what you're going to sell for. There was too much uncertainty because of all of those COVID tailwinds that the seller, myself, the broker, really, we didn't have any idea how many, how long any of those tailwinds were going to last and how much that was going to impact 2022, let alone 23 and 24 and so on. And so the broker that probably almost never see this with any uh, brokerage, but the seller was adamant that when we do a projection for 2022, we're actually going to show between five and 10% revenue shrinkage. Um, because we were pretty confident that some of these tailwinds were not going to last all the way through 2022. Um, and so, you know, I think that was very honorable and brave of the, the seller and the, the broker to do that and to be upfront about that. Um, because again, most businesses that have been around for that, you know, this business started in 2007. You don't just more than double your earnings in one year without a whole lot of external influences, right? Um, or it, you know, in very rare circumstances. And so, you know, luckily we were negotiating on the same plane that 2021 was excellent, but we really don't know how, whether that can be uh, counted on or whether we're going to come back a little bit or how far we're going to come back and kind of revert back to the mean of 18 through 20. So, yeah. um, so my negotiation, so I met with the seller, you know, one of the things I would really encourage any, um, this is basic knowledge, I think, but, uh, one of the things that I, I think really helped was when I met the sellers in person, you know, ask a lot of great questions about their business, ask about the origin story, be, be complimentary, flatter them if to, to an extent that people want to talk about their baby. They want to talk about their business and especially if it's doing as well as this business was. And so I think just coming in very humbly, um, building a good rapport very quickly. Um, you know, we, we met at the office and we went and had a beer afterwards and just being able to kind of break bread away from the business and build it a little bit more of a personal relationship pretty quickly. Uh, 
very much helped with, you know, getting the deal, but also throughout the negotiation, throughout the transition. We, I have a, the utmost respect for the sellers. We built a great relationship. Uh, there's still an ongoing relationship. They still own the property. So still paying rent to the sellers. Um, and you know, there, that will be an ongoing relationship, uh, for a while as well as some seller notes. So, um, kind of getting into my negotiation, you know, the seller or the seller's broker was very, um, he was very much a part of that. He brought in two different lenders that he had a lot of confidence in, even though I, I had already networked and met with a couple of different lenders on my own. Um, and he wanted me to speak to them because he really wanted them to do a hard look at my finances and um, put together a deal structure that they knew confidently was going to get SBA approved. Um, he did not want to sign an LOI with me if the bankers could not provide reasonable confidence, or I should say a very high level of confidence that they could actually close this business with our deal structure. And so um, I put together an LOI. Um, they ultimately did not accept the, the first LOI, came back to me with a number of different red lines and had some different um, points on deal structure. And we actually went to lunch, me and the sales broker and one of the bankers and probably sat there for two hours talking about different deal structures that would, that the bank would be happy with, that the seller would be happy with, and that we thought we'd get close with. And so we ultimately landed on a, a change from an asset purchase to a stock purchase uh, because of the tax benefits to the seller. That was something that was the seller was motivated by. Um, I was willing at that point to take the risk, take on the risk that comes with the stock purchase because I thought the upside of this business was, um, was worth it. And, uh, and that also helped create a structure that was more, um, accessible to me or that we could make work, uh, for both parties. Shane, the, so you've, you meet, you've, you meet with the seller twice. You do the first kind of getting to know you and then going to the office and it turns out to be a beer. Uh, when did you meet for that first meeting? We actually had a conference call at the end of January and then the next week met in person. But where, where was that in the in the process of oh, getting uh, the listing, talking to the broker? Uh, so I spoke first spoke with the broker at the end of January uh, that week, set up a conference call. You know, so I've officially launched January 1st. Within the first month, I'm speaking to the, the broker and uh, ultimately have my first call with the owner uh, within the, the month of January. Uh, again, a week later, we meet in person. Less than a week later, I had my LOI in their hands. And uh, for the next three weeks was when we kind of went through that LOI negotiation phase. So from the, the broker, you have a conference call with the seller, and then the seller the, that conference call goes well. And he says, why don't you come out? Let's meet in person. Come see the business. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Okay, great. Okay, and then the second meeting after you've submitted your LOI that they've redlined, um, and you all get together to, to hammer out a deal. That must have been uh, a high anxiety moment for you. I mean, that was a, a fateful couple of hours in your life. It, it was. You know, I had already been given some strong indications that the sellers liked me, that they wanted to make a deal work with me, um, that the broker was confident enough in me, but he needed to hear it from the from the lenders. He really did that, that, uh, that assurity from the, the lenders that we would actually be able to close because meanwhile, so at the end of January, this, this deal is not on the market. The reason being is that the sellers that originally worked with a different brokerage that didn't handle the, the, the listing very well, they ended up kicking it to this other affiliate brokerage, which is where 
the broker that I spoke with ends up, ends up taking the ball and running with it. Basically, as soon as he gets the, the listing is, I think within the same week is when we had our conversation. So it just happened to be, you know, I don't want to say luck, but the, the right timing that I was speaking to him because he had just gotten this listing. It's fresh. They hadn't updated their SIM. The SIM was two years old. They hadn't put it on this by sell quite yet. But meanwhile, from the time that, you know, we have our first conversation to the time we ultimately are under LOI, the listing goes up on this by sell. There's getting multiple, you know, a lot of uh, interested buyers. Um, there was even some other LOIs that were submitted. And so, you know, luckily the, again, made the right impressions on the seller that they were motivated to, to work with me so that we could go through that longer process of actually getting the LOI agreed to. And yeah, so you're sitting around the table with these folks negotiating with your seller and, you know, his broker and a lender, you said it was the four of you? The, not the seller, just the seller's broker, but the lender, the seller's ah. broker and I. Ah, okay. Okay. Knowing also that, you know, you're, yes, you're, a, you're, you were ahead of the curve on this business, but that in fact, you know, the broker is doing his job. He's going to put it back on biz by sell. Other LOIs are going to come in. You, you know, being a, a searcher who's done your homework that $900,000 looking back now, you know, putting aside 2021, but a business that's regularly generating $900,000 in cash flow is going to be very desirable to a lot of people. So, um, you don't want this one to slip through your fingers. Um, and just just a little bit more color on what you had said, uh, th this kind of history you said, um, Shane, it, it had been, there was a two-year-old sim, so they had tried to sell the business two years prior. What A little bit more color there. Yeah, so uh, they had, uh, I'm not going to name the brokerage, uh, but they had gone, uh, gone through a very well-known large brokerage. And um, ultimately, I you know, had decided that they were ready to, to start uh, trying to sell the business. Uh, I think at that point, they, they didn't really expect the process to happen very quickly, but they at least wanted to get it out to market, see what kind of offers, you know, at that time they could have got. Um, from what I was told from the sellers, the broker just didn't do their job. They just didn't work very hard. They didn't really market it. And um, it kind of just sat there. This was, I think, in 2019. So Keep in mind now, you know, March of 2020 is when COVID officially hits um, and a lot of things are up in the air for the business. You know, they ended up shutting down for six weeks uh, completely, still paid our employees through that time. So there was a lot of uncertainty around what was going to happen. And certainly I don't think anyone could have predicted that um, the business ultimately would have done significantly better as a result of the pandemic, you know, in those first early months. And so that obviously took their uh, their time and attention was to navigate the business through the, through the pandemic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they were frustrated, presumably, by the, this brokerage that really didn't do much for them. On the other hand, <laughs> it was a blessing in disguise because they got, they got to enjoy all of the, the, the additional profits that, that came in, in 20, through 2021. Um, Shane, we haven't even said what the business does. I should have asked you that about 40 minutes ago. Uh, tell yeah. us what the, I mean, we've touched on a trailer dealership, but, but, but give us, give us more. Yeah. So it's, it's North Texas trailers. We're a trailer dealership, uh, a fully independent trailer dealership in the Dallas Fort Worth area. We have three locations in uh, Fort Worth, Louisville and McKinney, uh, which are Fort Worth's obviously a large part of the Metroplex. Louisville and McKinney are kind of Northern suburbs of the, uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area. Um, uh, we sell new trailers. We uh, do service um, and repair work on trailers. 
and we sell trailer parts. So basically anything um, that a traditional car dealership does, we do, but exclusively for trailers and specifically cargo um, and utility trailers uh, are kind of our bread and butter. We also do flatbeds, equipment haulers, car haulers, dump trailers, uh, basically anything you can tow with a pickup. Mm -hmm. But even though it's just a pickup, you're mostly selling to other business people, not yeah. consumers. Yes, for the for the most part. And, you know, it's uh, like when you buy a new car or you, you all of a sudden have a new job, you start to notice things that are in your surroundings that you never noticed before. Uh, I've been on Dallas highways for uh, for a number of years and had no idea that there were that many trailers on the road. Now it's <laughs> yeah. all I see. And yep. uh, Dallas Fort Worth is the number one area in the country for trailers. Um, and there's a lot of very large manufacturers within uh, within the area, within a two hour drive of, of Dallas Fort Worth, uh, particularly out in Waco and in East Texas. So it is a hotbed uh, for the, the trailer business. And, and so is that a competitive advantage? I mean, is that part of the reason why your business has been successful because it happens to be in the Mecca? Well, there's also a lot of competition, uh, probably more competitors right. in Dallas, Fort Worth than there are in probably any, right. anywhere else. And, you know, uh, in the country, um, but you know, we get a lot of the economic type kind of tailwinds. And one of the things that really helped make me comfortable with this business was that I was going to school at the time, but I lived in Dallas, Fort Worth during the recession of 2008, 2009 and Dallas, Fort Worth was certainly had like all areas of the country was impacted, but had a lot more isolation than I think other parts of the country. And so, uh, you know, if you look at our, I don't know but off the top of my head, but if you just look at our, our residential populace and how much it's grown over the last 20 years and kind of what the future projections are, more and more people are going to continue to move to Texas. They're going to continue to move to North Texas. The Metroplex is going to continue to expand outwards and well, we're not directly related to the construction business, we support a lot of uh, kind of customers that are around the construction business. And so I felt very confident that this is an area that will continue to have those economic tailwinds uh, supported and, uh, you know, the, the future is bright. So even mm -hmm, though there's mm -hmm. it's a hotbed of competition, there's still a lot of positive trends that will help propel our business. Mm -hmm. And when you say dealership, so I, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen a trailer dealership, but like you said, I probably have and didn't notice. And now I'll look for them and see them everywhere. But um, does a trailer dealership, I mean, do you have a lot with trailers out on the lot for, for shoppers to come look at? I mean, does it look like a car dealership except, you know, presumably a smaller footprint and trailers instead of cars out front? It, it does. Uh, I would say that it's definitely not as uh, professional as, you know, not glass walls and you know, fancy yeah. cars in the showroom. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's very much like that. You know, one of the things that also made me very confident about this business is that there's a, a handful of very large national dealer brands, big techs, most notably, um, is, is the, the biggest one in the industry. There's a number of others. And so I looked at all of our competition in the Dallas Fort Worth area, at least just kind of Googling. And, you know, I, there's a handful of, like I said, a very large national manufacturers and they, they come with all of the size and infrastructure that you would assume that some, a company of that size does. But when you get a little bit below our size of business, you start to get into that, 
used car lot basically, but except the trailer lot. It's a guy with a shed and a little tiny lot and he's got a handful of trailers and there's, there's no website, there's a phone number. They're not doing service, they're not doing parts, they don't have rentals like we do. So they're just, there's a lot of competitors out there that are just your mom and pop little trailer yards um, that I don't really feel like we compete with. Um, and so that gave me a lot of confidence that we were well positioned within the market. We're, we're not one of the big national players, but we are, you know, with three locations with the side, the number of trailers that we're moving and, um, having service parts and, uh, rentals, you know, we're offering a lot more to our consumers than, um, uh, than kind of your lower end, tra uh, trailer yard, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. And, and so what is the, what's the size of the business in terms of people and employees? There are 19 employees, including myself. Um, we run pretty lean and mean, so I'm, I'm looking to kind of add to and expand our headcount and uh, take a little bit of uh, non-selling activities off of my sales uh, sales folks' plates um, and just better support them so we can be a little bit more um, strategic about how we engage with our consumers and, and uh, building out our sales pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, and so is sales a lot of kind of what what the business does i mean it, it, you you service of course you got people doing the service of trailers so for that that service revenue but is actually selling trailers like the kind of the core offering of the business it, it is our it's the largest part of our revenue it's about two-thirds of our revenue um and uh but it's only um it, it's not it's just like a car dealership, it's not the most profitable part of the business. And so the way mm -hmm. I kind of look at it is we sell new trailers so that when those those trailer or those customers, uh, when something breaks on their trailer, they bring it back to us to service it. Uh, because really service and parts is uh, you know, the more profitable part of the business and um, an area that I think we can continue to, to expand on and do, you know, to get better at. But yeah, it, sales is, is the, the number one revenue driver for sure. Mm -hmm. And the... How much does your average or median trailer cost? I just, I know it's, there's, I'm sure there's a wide variety, but give us just a ballpark here. Yeah, so trailer costs on average have gone up about 40% since the pandemic. So what used to cost $3,000 is now $5,000. And um, so that, that new median price is, is much higher than it would have been three years ago. Uh, but I would say on average, average is going to be eight to 9000 we sell trailers as little as 2,500 and as much as 50,000. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. But eight or 9,000. And the, in 2022, so how is it shaping up compared to your projections and compared to 2021, that whole conversation? We're almost at the end of the year here. What, what, what happened? Yeah. So uh, I'm very pleased to say that the business is doing great. Uh, we are uh, essentially exactly flat year to date on sales. Um, so we have not grown, but we did not have the, the five to 10%, um, reduction that, that, I th that we thought we might, um, our service, uh, revenue has grown 15% and our sales revenue has dropped about 6%. So, um, overall service is making up for the drop in sales. I think as we close out the year, um, we're at this new crossroads economically where all of our manufacturers have caught up there's the supply chains have been opened up, uh, but at the same time, demand is starting to come down. And so we're kind of the inverse of where we were two years ago, 
where we have more inventory um, and our manufacturers have more inventory with a little less demand. So um, I foresee, um, you know, some challenges and a bumpy road ahead on the new sales side, but that's where our service revenue growth uh, really gives me encouragement and, you know, I'll continue to help prop up the business um, until we can get back to more of a little bit of a normalized sales pipeline. Mm -hmm. Excellent, Shane. And and just going back to when you evaluated this business, I was so focused on that big $900,000 or $1.7 million in 2021, um, that earnings number. Um, but what else about the business did you like? And, and what value did you envision adding? What was your vision for your ownership of this business? I'm sure you've had a lot of guests say this, um, but number one, I, I had a lot of trust with the sellers. Uh, mm -hmm. I felt very confident in the business they had built. Uh, what everything that they showed me, that they told me, has uh, aired out to be true. There was no uh, snakes under rocks that that I had to uncover, uh, and so I felt very confident that uh, in the business that they had built and in the priorities that they had built it upon. I really like that we are diversified. We have three locations, so it's we're not just dependent on one location and the traffic of one area. We're covering three important parts of the the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex. Uh, we have a lot of employee uh, loyalty. Uh, our average employee has been here probably eight years. Um, and so that has that gives me a ton of confidence knowing that we have a strong team culture. We have a lot of loyalty with our team members and they do excellent. I, I've been so impressed uh, with all of them through this transition. It um, really has been about as good of a transition as I, I could have hoped for. That's uh, not to say that there aren't issues and that you know, employees don't come with their own challenges at, from time to time. But um, so those were a lot of the things that, that gave me confidence and uh, made me attractive to this business. So it, it sounds like you were attracted to it because it felt like a very high quality business in a market that had nice tailwinds. Um, but you're not, you didn't have some hugely aggressive growth strategy yet. I mean, with a solid business in an industry with tailwinds, presumably there will be growth opportunities, but you weren't like, I'm going to grow through acquisition or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z right when I get in there, or I'm going to, you know, redo the website or all of that. It was more like you're going, taking, taking control of a great business and you'll, and that was kind of like, check that box and the, and the rest you'll see. Yeah. So two, two other things, uh, there's literally very little customer concentration, if any. Um, 2021, the largest customer represented 1% of revenue. So we are very well diversified with a large customer base. Um, that was very, very attractive, which obviously, you know, that's, that can be a concern with a lot of small businesses. Um, and, um, uh, one other thing that I kind of failed to, to mention was that the owner had built out e-commerce storefront, um, prior to. Um, prior to 2021, he worked through the through the end of 2021 and beginning of 2022 to get this e-commerce storefront up and running where we sell parts uh, online. And obviously, with the growth of e-commerce, I saw that as a natural, uh, huge growth opportunity. Yeah, um, you know, four months into owning this business, um, I, I still feel as though that is a great growth opportunity. I haven't uh, dedicated the time or energy or money yet to really making it what it needs to be to be successful, uh, just because there's a lot of other foundational work that I want to establish within the parts of our business that are already uh, revenue generating before I really kind of pour the 
the money and time and energy and the e-commerce that uh, that I know needs to be put into it in order for it to be successful. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. But um, what an enticing prospect to just have there waiting for you when, when you can turn the, your attention and resources to it. That'll be great. Shane, I, wanna, I still have a bunch of questions for you. Um, so I want to move here. I want to go back to your just acquisition um, for a sec. You had said something that I glossed over, but I wanted to give it a little attention. The stock sale versus asset sale. Um, you elaborate on that a little bit more. What you what the risks are traditionally, and why so many uh, so many acquisition entrepreneurs prefer and do asset sales, uh, and why sellers often prefer a stock sale. And in this case, the seller really pushed you on that, and you were willing to do that. Um, unlike so many acquisition entrepreneurs, so please have at it on on the question of stock versus asset sale. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm not a, a, a tax authority, but as I understand it. And I don't know what the specifics are, but there are significant tax advantages for a seller um, by executing a stock purchase because the majority of the purchase is taxed and is capital gains, which obviously comes at a lower tax rate versus the way that the asset allocation works when you execute an asset purchase. Um, and so that was obviously very attractive to the seller. Um, traditionally, in an asset versus stock sale, because sellers gaining um, the tax advantages. Traditionally, you can have a little bit of a lower purchase price and the net to the, the seller is going to be uh, the same or, or, or similar. Um, and the risk and, and the reason that they're so, so very, you know, not very oftenly done is that you inherit all of the previous liabilities of the business for the entire time that's been around uh, when you execute a stock purchase. You're buying a membership interest into that that entity, that that, that company. We're, we're an LLC, and so I bought 100% of the membership interest in North Texas Trailers. Uh, but with that, anything that happened prior to closing, I'm now responsible for uh, any type of liability. Now, we have, as every, as every purchase agreement has, there's indemnification and there's you know limits and things like that. Uh, that that help guide that, but you, you do expose yourself to that. Now, obviously, in an asset purchase, if something catastrophic happens prior to closing, well, it can affect your brand name legally because you've created a new entity and you bought the assets of that entity and brought it into your new one. Legally, you're not on the hook for prior liabilities uh, with the stock purchase you are. So that's the, the number one downside. Um, and it's a very real downside. I'll, I'll share that uh, a day before we closed on the business, there was a lawsuit served. Um, I, I, I'm confident that we're in the right on it's you know, kind of a basic slip, trip and fall. Um, and that's mm. what we have insurance for. And, you know, like we, I believe did a lot of the things right, but this occurred in 2020, you know, June 2nd of 2022 when was when the lawsuit, lawsuit was served and we closed on June 3rd. So I'm now responsible for that. I wasn't working yeah. here in 2020. Um, <laughs> That's such a perfect <laughs> example of why this this is dicey. I mean, literally yeah. a day before close, and now you've inherited this lawsuit. But go right. ahead. But but again, uh, going back to that initial LOI negotiation, um, I wanted to avoid a stock purchase because it was what I was taught was uh, for all these you know additional liability reasons. But once the seller had kind of made up their mind that, that, that this is what they wanted. Again, 
I thought it was too good of a business not to not to buy uh, just for the sake of executing an asset purchase versus a stock purchase. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Okay. And can you tell us what the acquisition price ended up being and, and kind of the structure of the deal? It was $4 million, 80% uh, SBA loan, 10% seller note, an additional 5% seller note on full standby and 5% buyer's equity. Um, the 5% full standby note allows the SBA to, to view that money as part of the buyer's equity injection to get to that minimum 10% or 10% buyer equity injection, which the SBA requires. Um, and so, yeah, that was our, our structure. And explain to folks what full standby means exactly. It means that the seller is agreeing that that seller note will not be paid at all until the SBA loan is paid in full. Um, and so that's, that's what we've agreed to in writing. Uh, what we've agreed to via handshake may be something different, but what we've agreed to in writing and as far as the bank is concerned is that the seller note will not be touched or paid until uh, the SBA loan is paid in full. Okay. <laughs> and the, so you did not have to go to, for, uh, to go with outside investors? I, I did not. Uh, well, I did in, in the end. Uh, my father helped me out with, uh, with some money that uh, we agreed that I would pay back within 18 months and I'm happy to share paid it back within four months. Um, but um, the, the reason for that was that I was looking at doing a ROPS um, transaction, which um, I was equipped to do, had the finances in order to do it, to fill this, this, this structure. Um, but after a lot of advice from uh, financial individual CPAs and, and lawyers, ultimately avoided the ROPS structure. Uh, my basically kind of the overarching guidance I was given is that if it's the only way you can purchase a business, then it's, then it's worth it. But if you can avoid it, uh, do so because there's just a lot of rigidity that comes with that structure, a lot less flexibility that you have down the road. Uh, you have, you know, you have to be a C corp. There's just a lot of other things that come along with, with executing Rob's transaction. And so, um, I was prepared to liquidate my 401k and pay the taxes and, and penalties to do so but ultimately uh, was able to get, get some help from my father to, to make that happen without having to kind of pay it, you know, uh, taxes and penalties. Penalties, yeah. And it's not really worth it. Great. Thank you for sharing that, Shane. That's, that's phenomenal. Fast forwarding back now to you being um, in the seat. So just give us a little bit on day one. Um, you said the transition has been as really as smooth as you could have hoped for. Uh, but, uh, you know, paint a picture for us when you when you come in and the announcement is made. Yeah. So uh, interesting first day we, we did a uh, we had all the employees, which doesn't very doesn't happen very rarely, um, very often because we have three locations and they're all about 30 minutes apart. We had all the locations come to one central location on a Saturday morning. And uh, the owners, uh, this was the first time any of the employees knew that the business was for sale. And uh, here I walk in and they're like, hey, this is Shane and he's bought the business. Uh, a little bit more of an intro and in, in background into me, but it gave me an opportunity to address all of the employees um, and kind of just talk about who I was, what the goals were, ensure, you know, really reiterate that nothing, no big changes were going to happen. And, and kind of what I uh, worked with was that I'm 
you can expect change in the future. There's not going to be any major changes for 90 days. I'm going to work with all of you and really try to observe um, all of you in your work habits as much as I can to understand what your needs are, uh, what roadblocks you have, what are some things that I can help uh, make make easier within this business. Uh, but I'm not, you know, I'm not missing any major changes for the first 90 days. And then uh, mm -hmm. we had to do a physical count of all of our parts inventory and all of our trailer inventory and actually do a full blown hand count, which we have over about $200,000 worth of uh, trailer parts inventory. Uh, some things as little as five cent bolts and some things as much as, you know, a couple thousand dollar axles. But we had hand count every single one of them to um, provide a true up of, um, of our working capital. What was what was estimated that was going to be transferred at the time of sale versus what was actually transferred at the time of sale. And so you know, that was a pretty tedious task uh, to do on day one with all of the, the employees. And we actually closed to close to the public to, to make that happen. But, you know, it was necessary as part of our transition. So. Shane, you mentioned that you uh, were at some point at, in your previous job. Uh, managing 750 people or had 750 people under you. So that's, um, that's a lot of management experience, presumably. How do you find, do, do you find that that has helped inform being the CEO of a small business or are they such different animals that not so much? T talk, talk to me about kind of your experience as a manager and, and talk to people out there who might not have the same experience that you did of 750 people under you uh, and, and what they can expect as manager of a small business, as CEO of a small business. Yeah, good question. So, uh, you know, the company I worked at had over 250,000 employees. So it was a very, very large organization. With that comes uh, a lot of nuanced corporate structure, which we obviously do not have in a 19-person um, organization. So the environment and the structure in which I lead and manage is very different. Um, but absolutely the experience is hundred percent helped. I think anytime that you have leadership and management experience, when you've dealt with conflict, you've dealt with unhappy employees, maybe unhappy customers, you've dealt with, uh, had to make decisions, stand by and live with those decisions, uh, in a corporate environment, unfortunately, you know, we made decisions as a company that oftentimes I didn't agree with, but that I had to execute upon and deliver you know, when it was terminating or laying off employees or um, making some sort of other changes within the business. But you learn how to talk through that and learn how to, to relate that as best you can to employees. Um, and so, you know, uh, there will continue to be, you know, employees that, have conflict with each other, maybe have conflict with me, have conflict with the customer. A lot of those types of situations I've seen before. Um, and, you know, I've obviously made uh, mistakes in managing those situations in the past. And I'm hoping to, you know, learn from those decisions and make better ones moving forward. Um, but the big difference in what I'm doing today versus what I did in the past is really more about making bigger decisions that affect all parts of the business and also being responsible for all parts of the business. You know, I was an operations leader and we did a lot hand in hand with sales. We did a lot hand in hand with finance and HR. Uh, but now all of that falls on me, all umbrellas, uh, fall on, on me and my team. And so just 
having the flexibility to work within all all different uh, parts of the business and understanding that I might be making a sales related decision at 10 a.m. and then I'm having to make an HR related decision at 10:30 and a finance related decision uh, within the next uh, few minutes and it all just kind of combines into you know one role as as the uh, the leader of the business. Mm-hmm. And is it what you expected being the leader of the business? Do you like this new feel? I love it. Uh, I, I don't know how I didn't do this sooner. Uh, it's been, <laughs> but, but you know that being said, everything happens for a reason. Um, I was able to do my search because of the the, the situation that I was in, and um, so. I, but I absolutely love it. Um, you know, like I said, it doesn't mean that there's not hardships and struggles that come with it, and navigating difficult situations and having the the stress related to um, being the the ultimate decision maker and being responsible for these other employees' livelihoods. Um, but it is, it's a great feeling. Um, it comes with a lot of flexibility. Um, I have a great team around me and I think that's really key to any successful business, no matter the size is having a great team around you. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it so far. That's great. Shane, last question for you. The, so you, you found a business that does, between nine hundred and one point nine hundred thousand and one point seven million dollars in earnings in cat in SDE uh, a year, um, really a, a bigger business in, in, than most searchers uh, are able to acquire or or can even find much as they'd love to. And you did it in six months. Uh, you got into a lot of detail on your process, your broker outreach. Thank you for that. That was really educational. Would you? Would you say that it was thanks to that broker outreach that you were so successful in your search and it happened so quickly or it was luck or it was, it's just a classic story of like increase, you know, increase your chances to, to be lucky and, and, and then more luck will come your way sort of thing. Um, I'm just trying to, trying to understand if there's a lesson to be extracted from your very positive search experience. I I think. Number one for me, it was the fact that I was full time, that I felt the responsibility to make up our income that was going to be lost with, with me having lost my job. Um, and so that just that that you can't fake that motivation. Um, you can't probably have that motivation if you're still earning an income and you're still you know, tied to your job. Doesn't mean I don't think you can be successful as a searcher. I think there's a lot of people that, that find the ways to do that and manage their time successfully. Uh, but I don't know that you could fake that, 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 I don't want to say desperation, but that motivation and that, that, uh, willingness to, to put in the work, um, to, yeah. to make it happen. Um, I think you burn the boats. It was a classic burn the boat situation. A hundred percent. Um, and you know, I, like I said, I got this seller or this seller's broker on the phone because I was cold calling that worked for me. It's not a guarantee it's going to work for everyone, but I certainly don't think it could hurt. Uh, I think you, know, you had uh, Doug Jones on recently. He talked about by the fifth, sixth, seventh time he's spoken to these brokers, he's now finally built a rapport. That doesn't happen without that persistence or, or you know, he finally was able to kind of get knocked down the door and other searchers, the, the same thing. You have to make multiple contacts with these buyers. They're not just from these sellers and these brokers. Or, or, or business owners are not just going to take you seriously right from the get-go for one or two yeah. emails. You've got to continue to follow up. And so uh, you know, I attribute a lot of that to the, the success and 
um, right place, right time. You know, um, it just kind of worked the way it did. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, your as I said, your process uh, it was great to hear your process. I think it's uh, there's a lot of value uh, in in um, in it. Clearly, Shane, how can people uh, reach you? What's the best way if they if they want to get in touch? Yeah, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of uh, people trying to sell me stuff on LinkedIn and reach out via that way. But you can reach me at uh, Shane Ersam, E H R S A M. You can also reach me via email uh, at Shane at ntxtrailers.com. And ntxtrailers.com obviously is also the URL everyone should check out to see North Texas trailers. Yes, absolutely. And if I can, we'll just one last plug for the acquisition lab. Um, it really helps build my success. Not only that, once I was through with my cohort, just having advisors, having other cohorts, the other members of the lab to reach out to at all hours through our Slack and through our different advisor hours. There were so many different points from negotiating that LOI to day before closing, getting a, getting a lawsuit served that I was able to reach out to um, both our advisors and the people within the lab and gain advice and gain guidance. And, uh, it really helped propel uh, me along my search. So. And, and just to, to be clear, everyone, yes, the Acquisition Lab is a sponsor of Acquiring Minds, but Shane and I found each other Separately, uh, I, I, I think I saw Shane's announcement on Search Funder, and, and that's how we why we're talking. Not because uh, not because a sponsor put him in the seat here, but uh, absolutely it, it dovetails beautifully. Um, I too went through the acquisition lab and found it enormously valuable. So I'm happy to have you say all that. Thank you very much for coming on, Shane. Thank you very much for um, being so transparent, particularly about the numbers, and um, look forward to having you back and hearing th how things have gone with North Texas Trailers. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Will appreciate it.